The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Welcome, my name is John, Director of Convergence, and we are in the series called Apocalypse. And uh, it's kind of a bummer way to start the year in some ways. Usually we don't have a lot of good connotations with Apocalypse, but... But I was pretty convinced, as I actually was been thinking about this for months, that, that we needed to delve into this book. And the reason is that the book of Revelation is, despite perhaps what we think, it is about uh, standing. And standing in a, in a place where most people would run, where most people would be dominated by fear. Revelation encourages, calls out to us, speaks to us in such a way that we could stand. But not just stand, actually be the kind of people who... Sometimes, again, when other people are running the other way, that we're standing and we're actually moving towards something. The things that scare us, the things that maybe should scare us, the things that scare uh, uh, our friends around us. We don't want to admit that, but we know that we a lot of times move throughout the world and make all kinds of moves. Career moves, uh, uh, places to live, friends. A lot. Of, it comes out of these places of anxiety, out of fear. We're, we're in a world that is dominated by images that a lot of times send all kinds of messages, often ramping up our anxiety. Revelation calls us actually to move redemptively into this world, not to say, well, it's all broken and stuff, but, but to actually move forward in to the very thing that scares us. That's what Revelation is about. My goal is that we would begin to get an image of, of Jesus and life and faith that empowers us as people to be people who live with hope to be people who make a difference in the world, but also to be people who know that there is a powerful God who is guiding us each and every step of the way. Well, one of the things, you know, we've done the last couple chapters, but this is, this is what we're about to get into is when it gets weird. Be real honest. A lot of times I've seen a lot of series that, that will go up until this point and then usually you stop it or you quickly run. You know, you do like two, a couple, couple weeks and then you're done. And it's because it is this, we're getting into the four horsemen, so giddy up. Alright? Well, you know, it's gonna get fun. But it's also, it's intimidating and it's difficult. And one of the things that as I've thought about this book and I think about us, and what does it look like for us to follow Jesus today, is that so often the images that come out of, uh, this section of scripture and the, and for actually a number of chapters, those images have gotten dominated by popular culture, and so they're used and they're being used to communicate all kinds of messages, not necessarily Christian messages, not necessarily what Jesus would have to say to us, or sometimes we've heard them turn into all kinds of predictions that we've seen come and go time and time again. The thing that bums me out is that that means that this book and the words that are spoken to us then are in the hand, are out of our hands because a lot of us feel intimidated. We don't know what to do with it, and it feels uh, uh, scary and confusing at best. One of my hopes is that we're going to be people who can handle revelation and be able to read it in such a way that we know that Jesus is speaking to us in there. We don't have to worry about all kinds of crazy predictions, one side or the other. But this is your book, and a lot of times I feel like this book has been ripped out of our hands. Well, one of the people um, that is, help, is here to help us do that is Ron. And so, in particular, I've asked Ron to come in. He's professor of biblical studies uh, over at Northwest University. And he's going to help us unpack this so that we can begin to have a, get a handle on what is going on uh, with uh, the Four Horsemen and a whole bunch of other stuff, awesome. hopefully. So let me pray, and then uh, Ron, teach us. Lord, thanks for this time. Thank you for this book. Uh, yeah, Lord... This book often is confusing. Um, 
Sometimes it's intimidating. Sometimes it feels like it's gotten honestly hijacked. Uh, Lord, we want to hear from you and what your spirit has to say to us tonight. Lord, help us to be the kind of people who stand strong in a world around us. And not only that, but actually move into all the places of our world redemptively uh, with a sense of courage. So, Lord, your spirit inspires scripture when it was written. And we ask that that same spirit would speak to us uh, now as we engage your word in your name. Amen. Ron. John, thanks. Um, thanks, everyone, for uh, being here and having me uh, be with you as well. It's great to talk about this stuff. Have I mentioned, I just need to ask up front, in the times that I've shared with you uh, in conversation with John here up front, have I talked about the Wizard of Oz yet? Did I mention the Wizard of Oz? No. Some of you are nodding. Some of you are shaking your head. All right. I'll say that briefly. But let me just say this. How many of you know that a good joke should not be explained, Right? A joke that's really funny, um, if you have to pull it apart, rip it apart, it's almost like a biology experiment where you dissect something, you rip it apart, and even though you learn a bunch of stuff about the thing you've just dissected, you can't ever really put it back together the way it was to begin with, right? The best kind of joke is the one in which you understand the points of reference, you get what's going on, and you laugh because you've been caught out by surprise, not because someone explained it to you. I once heard this said about my mother-in-law, who is one of my favorite people on the planet. So this is not a mother-in-law joke, but, but this, this illustrates her compassion. Uh, she laughs at anything anyone says. And I think it's almost, and it's this, this intentional, wanting to make you feel good about yourself kind of a thing. But I heard someone once say about my mother-in-law that she laughs three times at every joke, when you tell it, when you explain it, and when she finally gets it, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and parables in the Gospels can be that way. We read parables, which would have been everyday, run-of-the-mill stories in which, you know, the people in Jesus' audience, for example, understood all the points of reference, but then there's a twist in the narrative and it catches them out. And it's the way it ends that's surprising and perhaps convicting or comforting. And an apocalypse is the same thing. An apocalypse is the kind of thing that as soon as I have to explain something or as soon as we have to have something explained to, to ourselves about the text, there's the potential of losing some of the power, of almost taking some of the steam out of it. And uh, on the one hand, I really don't want to do that. On the other hand, we have almost 2,000 years of church history to show us that people who don't understand an apocalypse and just try to roll with it do a lot of weird things with it. All right. So we come to Revelation 6, 7, and 8, which are often called the seven seals. And, um, and the, the first thing that I want to say about the seven seals is that the only way to understand them in the first place is just like you'd understand chapter 6, 7, and 8 of any book you might be reading. You should probably have read the first five chapters first, and you should probably know something about what comes after chapter 8. So the first thing that we need to know is that the thing that's being talked about is the scroll that was presented in the heavenly court when we talked about it last week in Revelation 5. You remember John's reaction to this scroll. He realizes this is something of incredible importance and he starts to weep and cry because no one is worthy or no one is capable. No one has the tools, so to speak, to be able to make sense of, to open it 
and to make sense of the contents. John weeps. And suddenly he starts to hear sort of this common Jewish language from his background. There's a lion from the tribe of Judah. And he's thinking, my goodness, could this be, you know, Messiah is going to unpack and explain everything. And he turns and he sees this pathetic slaughtered baby lamb. And in an apocalypse, these images are intended to convey really important messages. There's theology in these symbols. And one of the things that happens here, when John says that Jesus is worthy, and this is review from last week, he tells us first that Jesus is the, the only one capable of opening it up. He's the only one who's able to give a full perspective of what might actually be in that scroll. The second thing is that Jesus has experience in terms of engaging powers and exposing them. Jesus is the only, he's the only figure, human, divine, or otherwise, that John knows who's actually faced the evil in the world around him and come out the other side in the way that Jesus did. So what John believes about Jesus is that Jesus is capable of explaining this and he's the only one who's ever faced these powers down and that qualifies him, right? the, the Bible languages, makes him worthy to actually figure out and expose what's going on in this scroll. So we suggested that the scroll is like the entirety of human history, the human story wrapped up in God's plan for the entire cosmos and creation. That's what the scroll is. And Jesus is the only one that John believes can actually tell us what's going on. I ask you guys this question. How many of you have ever like, been in a situation in life, whether it's a relationship or a financial struggle or a career crossroads, family thing, and you've just, you've, you, I mean, you know, there are times where you know you've screwed something up and you kind of know what you should do. There's other times where you know, I mean, I was innocent and the other person screwed up or something else has gone wrong. Have you ever been in those situations where you just don't know? Like, there, see, there doesn't seem to be this kind of clear, I was in the right or I was in the wrong. Um, and things are just confusing. And you ask the question, what's going on here? And to some degree, in chapter 6, this seven-sealed scroll, that's exactly what John does. He's asking the question, What's going on here? And it's the lamb, as he opens these seals, that's able to tell John's audience what's actually going on in the world in which they live. Back to the Wizard of Oz. Some of you are nodding, some of you are shaking your head. I think I may have mentioned this final scene, or near the end of the Wizard of Oz, where they walk back into the castle, having done all these things, and the great and terrible Oz is there, the voice, the lightning, the flashing of the sound of thunder. Think of all those things. We're going to read about them in just a moment. But they're all in the Wizard of Oz. And as they go into the castle, they go to the place where they think they're supposed to meet the wizard. And the little dog Toto has run behind a curtain. And the curtain has kind of pulled back. And they realize that all the lights, all the smoke machines, all the lightning, all the, the flashing sounds and all the deep voices and rumblings, there's a little old guy cranking a machine and talking into a microphone, right? The great and terrible Oz is really a funny old man. And that's an apocalypse, you think you see one thing, but then you see another. All right? And this is what John does in chapter 6. Right? So let's, let's read it together. I think we've got uh, the text on the screen. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, 
as with a voice of thunder, Come! And I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. That word uh, conquering, uh, the word conquer, happens over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. It's the word that, as a verb, is nikao in the Greek, and it's the word from which the goddess of war and conquest in the Roman pantheon of gods, Nike, that's where her name comes from. And you guys know that name because you wear it on your sneakers, Nike, right? But that's the word in the text. This first horseman is given power to conquer. I'm going to suggest to you that this is manipulation, the use of power, control, all right? So that's the first thing that this this first seal unpacks. Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. Right? Third one, verse 5, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come, and I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. By the way, these are the basic staples of food in the ancient world. And what you have here is rampant radical inflation. All right. For the economists and more than just inflation as sort of a feature of economics, what you've got here is the kind of inflation that's overtly taking advantage of others and unjust. All right. It's it's oppressive in that sense. All right. So we have these four figures. I'm going to stay there for a moment, Brenna, but thank you. Let me ask you this question. You see these four figures and the language of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is common. Uh, we see it in cartoons. We, uh, we hear people refer to it. And people make all kinds of associations with this. What I want to do, first though, is remind you that John's readers, when they hear about four horses, that's not the first time they've ever heard about four horses. That's really important for us to remember. John's audience, many of them would know that Zechariah had a vision of four horses in Zechariah chapter 1. And guess what? The, the, the horses in Zechariah had different colors, including red and black and green, or pale green. So what's John doing here? As he sees this lamb in the, in the heavenly throne start to unseal the seals of the scroll, this scroll represents all of human history. So let me put this into plain everyday language. As Jesus snaps open the binding on the book and the contents of the book spill out, human history is characterized by manipulation and power control, war and the taking of life, right? injustice and economic injustice. I guess we didn't read the fourth one yet. So, Brenna, let's go ahead to the fourth one. Right? The fourth seal, fourth living creature call out, come, there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed with him. Hades is just the place of death in the Greek world. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. Right? So you have manipulation and power control. 
You have war and conquest. You have injustice and oppression. And you have, or included in that is famine. And then you have death in a variety of forms. And here's, here's what John is doing to some degree. He's showing you that all the things that we might look at in the world around us and say, what's going on here? Right? That question. The lamb is able to expose what that really is. Right? The lamb is able to take the events of the world around us that are either random or evil or violent or oppressive, and he is able to control or name or expose them. Right? Because you understand, conceptually, the question from chapter 5 is, are you kidding a baby lamb? Right? That's the best you can come up with for Lord of the Cosmos, right? Ruler of the great sea and beyond. The best you can come up with is a slaughtered baby lamb. And what John says is, wait a minute. That slaughtered lamb, that figure who suffered, is able to take everything that the world can throw at us in terms of human experience and name it, expose it, catalog it, and when the other shoe falls, deal with it in judgment. So as these four horsemen first unfold, um, what we see is John is taking the everyday realities of injustice in his world and saying, Jesus is capable of exposing the stuff that goes on around you all the time. When you think people are getting away with it, when you hear message that you, messages that you think, man, that doesn't sound right, but it would sure make life easier on the planet right now, those are the things that Jesus names, exposes, catalogs, and ultimately wants you to see for what they really are. So I'm not going to ask for show of hands right now. I'm not going to ask for feedback, but I want you to think about this question. What are the potential features of the world within which we all live. So we could be kind of general and say Pacific Northwest, Seattle, 2011. What are the features of our context, the world in which we live, that are characterized by these kinds of conditions that are part of the human story, part of the human experience? And one of the things that I would say, and I don't think we've done this yet, John, but we have a painter painting in the back corner. During our time together here tonight, one of the things that John did when he was going about trying to expose, when he was trying to think, how could I best expose these powers? He tells an apocalypse. In other words, he takes the one genre of literature that engages all five senses and is as creative as possible. And he uses that to expose what's going on in the world. And so one of the things that we're going to encourage all of us to participate in, and Scott is starting us off uh, tonight and next week by doing some painting along these lines, we're going to think creatively, how can we identify the powers around us, name them, and with the help of the Lamb, expose them? And what is it the Lamb does in response to these things? Those are some of the questions that we want to ask, right? So... Overall, these first four horsemen, the message is evil is known. Do you remember back in chapters 2 and 3 where the message that John gave us was Jesus walks among the churches and we're known, right? And the idea that that's supposed to be both comforting and also just a little bit frightening, right? 
to be known is an incredibly comforting thing. It's also a very vulnerable thing. It can be terrifying if you don't want everything about you known. But not only is the gospel, and we t- you understand, we tend to talk Christianese and say, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows the world. This Jesus doesn't just know what's going on in here. This Jesus is able to name and identify and expose everything that's going on around us in the world. And that's really the message. That's the thing I want us to reflect on. Do you worship a Jesus who can expose all of the evil, injustice, oppression in the world around you? And maybe the other question you might be thinking is, how is that good news? Especially if I can think of a lot of things in my world and in my life that might fit into those categories. And we'll answer that in a moment. But as the fifth seal opens up, the scene shifts a little bit again. Right? So if the lamb is capable of making sense of all the evil and injustice in the world in which we live, what else is the lamb capable of? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, this is the altar in the heavenly court in chapters 4 and 5, the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God. I just want to point something out. That's not an accidental word, that word slaughtered. That's precisely the same word that appeared in chapter 5 when John turned and saw a slaughtered lamb. These are people who have followed the lamb to its fullest conclusion. These are people who have walked the way of the lamb and have given up their lives. And I can tell you the name of at least one person in John's churches who had actually done that. His name was Antipas. You find him named in Revelation 2.13. So these are people who have followed Jesus. They were slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. And by the way, the word that we translate testimony, this is not like, you know, Sunday night, stand up and give a little testimony. right? Testimony here is the word martyreo, from which we get the word martyr, right? The ultimate giving of a testimony on behalf of Jesus is being willing to lay down your life for him. And they cried out with a loud voice. Now tell me, if you've ever suffered for doing the right thing or experienced pain for doing the right thing, tell me if this doesn't resonate a little bit. They cry out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Well, in the first place, we can imagine a lot of people who might pray that prayer. How long, God, till you sort things out? And you might be thinking a lot more everyday life. Like, how long, Lord, till I get a job and I'm not dependent on my parents anymore? Or how long, Lord, until this conflict or this fractured relationship heals and we come together? How long, Lord? You might be thinking in those terms. But these are people who have followed the Lamb And here's the thing I want to point out to you. Just like the four horsemen are familiar figures from John's Bible, so is this prayer. This may be the most common prayer in the Hebrew Bible, right? We'd like to think that prayer is this great faith and power thing. Come, Lord, right? Uh, Do your stuff. You know, come and be victorious. No, the, the most common prayer of Christians and ancient Israelites How long, O Lord, until you set this all right? And that's what they're praying here. Psalm 79, verse 5 is a classic example of that. And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer 
until the number would be complete, both of their fellow servants and of their brothers and sisters, who, and boy, you've got to imagine that it gets a little quiet in church in Asia Minor in the first century when they read this sentence, who were soon to be killed as they themselves have been killed. Right? John, you know, we've talked a lot about, um, and Pastor John has, has, has talked a lot about, you know, encountering the Lamb means living without fear means running into the darkness, running into the chaos. Now, the thing you have never heard him say is, and don't worry, it won't cost you much or it won't hurt, right? When you run into the darkness, there's always the possibility, in fact, for John, it would have been a likelihood that there will be a cost, right? And the message of this fifth seal, the thing to take away is that resistance faithfully living and following the Lamb costs you something. And now I take us back to last week. Remember near the end where we were talking about which narrative are you going to buy, right? Is it the narrative of Domitian and the world, um, which is actually exposed by the Lamb in the first four seals? Or are you going to buy the narrative of the Lamb uh, who's, who's on the throne? Uh, is, that the, is that the narrative you're going to buy? And this seems to be, at least for some of the followers of the, of the Lamb, that seems to be the outcome. Right? So at this point, here we are, five seals into this. I want to make a comment about the sixth seal. And then I want to make a, a general comment about what are seals, what are trumpets, and what are bowls. And then we'll take a break, give you a chance to defragment a little bit. Uh, from all of this apocalyptic symbolic stuff. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit and have some question time uh, between John and I. Let's go to verse 12, sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black. This, is, this really is where it gets weird, right? The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's a weird phrase, the wrath of the Lamb, which we already know has been slaughtered. For their, the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? All right? Now, this is about the point in time where if this was a real prophecy seminar, we should dim the lights down low and say, folks, Nuclear war is just around the corner, right? Or did you know that they're developing a mark that's going to be imprinted on your forehead? Well, no, they're not. I mean, that's not what this book is about. Um, and so I'm sorry to disappoint you if that's where you were hoping this uh, series would go. But what is, what, what is it that happens when the lamb snaps open this sixth seal? Well, let's look at some of these images. All right, I'm just going to kind of list them for you. We have an earthquake. And you need to know that traditionally in the Old Testament prophets, an earthquake was a signal that God was speaking and he was speaking with definitive judgment. Right? So I need to say something about what it looks like when God speaks and I need to say something about judgment. 
Where does anybody remember where the first time ever in the Old Testament was that God spoke and there was thunder and lightning and an earthquake? Anyone remember? It's at Sinai. You remember when the Israelites are gathered around Mount Sinai, right? And that's not a scene of of negative judgment. This is Yahweh speaking giving his word to his people. And the signs that accompany it are earthquake, thunder, and lightning. And an earthquake becomes this kind of symbolic, it's almost like a byword that you say earthquake in a theological sense, and it means Yahweh's speaking and his judgment is coming. So that's what you need to know about earthquake. But now we need to know what is judgment because it has these negative connotations. Now, anybody who's but paying attention at all, knows that a, you know, a very high-profile court case has just concluded in Italy. In fact, apparently Amanda Knox landed today in Seattle. I was watching it with my family as we were having dinner at 6 o'clock. Here's what's fascinating about judgment. In a case like that, a judgment or a verdict is given, right? But it's not just bad news. There are some people for whom that is great news. Judgment always runs in two directions. It's positive and negative. And so the earthquake is going to be good news for some people and perhaps bad news for others. But it's a symbol of God speaking his judgment, God giving his verdict. The sun gets blackened. The moon goes bloody. What's going on there? I mean, is this an example of nuclear war or are we destroying our planet? Is this an ecological crisis? It's not. The sun was the source of life. And in the ancient world, many civilizations that were not ancient Israelites would worship the sun as a deity and the moon at night to give light. These were considered to be divine bodies that sustained life on the planet in an ancient pagan view. And what's interesting here is John is saying when the Lamb opens the scroll, right, and you can see it being unrolled there, and, and when these riders come out and every, all these powers are named and exposed, when Yahweh speaks his judgment, everything changes and nothing stays the same. Now, if we were to imagine a literal sun going dark, does anybody know how long we would last? I don't. I don't know these things, but I've heard that it's a matter of seconds or minutes, right? If the sun went out, I know it would probably take eight minutes for the light to stop traveling to the earth, and at that point, we'd be done. Or I've heard people talk about, you guys can tell now that I didn't do a PhD in science, right? You guys can tell that? Yeah. All right. But I've been told that if the sun had like this super solar flare or something, or if there was, you know, a suddenly this... this great intensification of either light or heat that life on the planet would wither and die in seconds or minutes, right? So we live in this, this amazing balance in our, in our solar system. But the fascinating thing here is literally life would cease to exist if that were to happen in our solar system. But in an apocalyptic, symbolic way, what is John saying? When Yahweh speaks... When the lamb exposes the pride and the hubris of the powerful, the kings, the generals, all the people, when the lamb opens the scroll and Yahweh speaks, life will not be the same. That's how this apocalyptic language is intended to function. And I hope 
that I'm demythologizing it just a little bit for you. And you recognize that the importance here is not, can we draw a picture of what this is actually going to look like, but rather, what's the message in the details, right? And then he says that the stars will fall. Again, I don't think he's talking about the movie Armageddon. I don't think he's talking about a meteor shower. What he's referring to is nothing will stay the same. And the stars were associated with gods and goddesses in the ancient world. So here's what's happened. The Lamb has opened this scroll. He's the only one worthy to tell us that there is power and manipulation. Because by the, there are some people in our world who think that that is the way to run life. And the Lamb says, no, it's not. And there are some people here who are committed to war and to violence and to might is right. And the Lamb tells us, no, it's not. I can expose that. There are some people who believe that unbridled, you know, whether it's capitalism or any form of sort of economic excess or abuse, that's okay. And the Lamb says, no, it's not. And we all know that our lives are touched by death, sickness, disease, and the Lamb tells us that's not okay either. The Lamb also tells us that God knows when His people follow His example and they suffer for it. And at the end of the day, the message of the sixth seal is that the pride and the arrogance of people who set themselves up against God will ultimately be exposed, right? I don't have time to go into this uh, because I, I want to give us some time for song and some, some reflection at the end. But if we go back to the text for just a moment, thanks, Brenna. Notice the very last thing at the end of verse 17. If you just go ahead to the third slide, I think. Yeah, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? That's really the question at the end of these six seals. Who's able to stand? And the answer is, in chapter 7, those whom God has called his people. And the author uses two different ways to tell the story of his people. He uses a number, and in, a, in an apocalypse, numbers mean more than the value of than their numeric value. Right? The number of the people of God is 144,000. Right? Nobody has to be afraid here. It's not that the holiest 144,000 are going to get in, because if that were the case, the book would probably be shut already. Right? The point is, how would John, an apocalyptic, creative seer, come up with a number like that? Well, he knows that Israel had 12 tribes. He knows that the church is founded on 12 apostles. And he knows that the number for an unnumbered inf infinity-type multitude of people is 1,000. And 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144. And he's using the number symbolically. And he says, God knows his people. This is the same message from chapter 2 and 3. God knows when you're his. He knows when you suffer. He exposes and sets out there, if you'll listen to him, if this apocalypse pulls the curtain back for you, you'll see these evil powers at work in the world around you and you'll be able to stand against them with the Lamb. All right? There's a lot more that I could say about chapter 7, and I'm not going to do it. I want to leave you with a couple of questions, and then have the band come back and lead us uh, in an important song that's going to help us to reflect on this. All right? What do we do with this? We talked last week about the fact that there are two narratives we can buy the narrative that our world around us wants us to buy into, and that's probably easier in some ways, or the narrative of the Lamb. And um, 
was having this conversation with John uh, earlier, and we were talking back and forth and asking the question, you know, uh, to what degree uh, does John just not kind of sound like a grumpy old man who's fed up with the world, right? There might be some of you sitting here going, what's the big deal? Like, the world isn't that bad. Well, from John's perspective, the created order is absolutely good. And when we get to chapters 21 and 22, we're going to see that John is not interested in getting off this planet and getting airlifted to some floating spaceship in the sky that he calls heaven. He's interested in an earth that works. But he doesn't believe it works right now. It doesn't work well. And the Lamb exposes that. So to come to this, I don't think John is just a grouchy old man. I think John sees injustice and oppression. And John, you remember, was on exile, was in exile on Patmos. He wants to stand against it. So let me ask you these questions. What features or elements of the four horsemen operate in our world today? And picking up on some of the things that Scott's been doing at the back and that we're going to encourage you to keep thinking about through this series, I want to ask the question, what does faithful, creative, redemptive, fearless engagement look like when we name these powers? And I have a final question for you. Can art, music, film, social action, technology, can these all be employed with the aims of God's kingdom in mind. In other words, it's not enough to just say bad stuff in this world, stay away. No, no, no. How can we run toward the things in our world that are broken and offer a different way of both using, developing, and living out the kingdom message? That's some of the things that we want to talk about coming back after the song. So you've got a few minutes to think about it. Um. As I thought about us looking at this, I knew that this is one of those topics that's big and it's heavy. And, um, and it's really important that we are able to grapple with it in a creative way, as Ron has talked about. It's really important that this is a passage that helps us to engage in the world that we live in. Because the truth is that the world that we live in is often... Um, sometimes it can feel really hard to know what the heck is going on. I appreciate what Ron had to say about... you know that. It, it, it can feel like that situation where you go, is it my fault? Is it someone else's fault? And I think one of the things that can paralyze us is that it's, we're going, what in the world is going on? And I think what, what Revelation begins to help us do, even though it's uh, uncomfortable at times, it's painful at times, is to begin to say, I see what is going on. And the Lamb actually sees more importantly and can hold it. I think one of the challenges in thinking about... Um, a passage like this in particular is that it starts to feel so cosmic and it's we're talking about famine and we're talking about war and and most of us don't live in a place of famine and war and so it can feel it can feel really really far away um, but it matters and it's interesting I actually had a conversation with someone today and I want to I'll be as general as I can so I don't want to give away details of what they're sharing but it was a follow-up of a co- a, a, a very different uh, conversation from um, when we had talked uh, last. Last time I talked, they were in a very, very difficult work situation. Very difficult work situation. Uh, they're just coming out of school in many ways, and they're they're in there and they're trying to start their career. Well, what I talked about, we what we had talked about today was interesting because there was a moment where she actually was feeling. Oops, said she. But anyways, amazing is amazing. 
um, gal. She actually uh, came to a moment where she had to say to a supervisor, you're telling me to lie. I can't do that. How? With the, the probably rightful fear that she could be fired on the spot in a bad economy. And yet, I need to say what is true, which is what you're asking me to do is unethical and you're asking me to, to lie. As we went on, we talked about uh, part, another, as the things progress, a situation in which we're talking about scarcity, in which it, there wasn't enough uh, funding to go around. And it easily could have turned into a time where we began to fight one another to make sure that I get something of the scarce resource. And, and thankfully, part of the story came out that they were able to, to live in a place where everybody was provided for and they didn't tear each other apart to do it. Wouldn't you like to live in a, work in a place that was like that? Where you don't feel like you're tearing each other apart over scarce resources. Where you feel like... In a culture that feels like almost anything goes, we can begin to speak truth, not to say, let's not make a profit, let's just not lie about it. So we went on, continued to share, there was a moment in which there was conflict that came up with um, workers, and, and um, it turned out it was a, another believer, and they actually were able to come to a place where instead of... Con- can, uh, combating with one another. They were actually to come and actually sat and they prayed together. And she actually had to have the humility to say, um, you know what, I probably should have approached you to pray about this, but you're approaching me. And you know what's true? What's really actually true? We don't want to say it because you know, we want to play nice in our work environment, is that we're not getting along. And yet what if we prayed about it? And what, what I was so inspired by, um, which I've seen in so many of you throughout the years, is this is a very tangible, down-to-earth way in which we need to begin to name things that are not the way they're supposed to be, and yet and then begin to think these little steps that sometimes feel very fearful, but begin to change a culture in which we live. Bold, because the, in times it can feel like a little thing you say, you could, you could lose your job. Faithful, there's a potential of loss, and yet it begins to bring uh, redemption and life into a place that might start to feel like it's toxic. This is what we're called to, and this is why I was so thankful for Ron to begin to help us understand that. And this is, and what I want to give you some homework to think about that as we think about next week. We're going to take some more time to engage this. Ron's given us a lot of information that we needed so that we can begin to unpack this passage. Um, these are in the back, and I want to encourage you to pick one of these up. I put them on the table right there. We have these each week. Uh, there's usually scripture on there, and then there's questions. You could ask each other these questions. There could be ways to kind of unpack this stuff. So much of what has been helpful for me is that Ron and I have actually batted this stuff back and forth. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa wait. And I'd push on him. And then I would, I, I would say something. He'd go, whoa, 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 wait. You're taking the easy way out. And I, you're right. Right? So this is, we need to bat this around. And then if you want to go deeper... Uh, but I want to encourage you to follow up on, on the questions that Ron had to say. Where do you see this kind of thing in your world? What would a, what would a faithful response look like? Um, and then what we'll do is we'll begin to, we'll unpack some of that uh, perhaps next week. We'll continue to deal with it. If you have questions, I want to encourage you to come up, something that was talked about tonight, come up and talk to Ron. He would love it. If you have questions or you have a thought, you could even, you could jot it on, down on here, drop it in the box in the back, or grab one of those uh, blue cards. If you have a question, let us know. What should we be, what should we be addressing? 
What should we be tackling with next week? And or, or somehow figuring out a way to, to hit this in a way that can help uh, instruct us forward. So write those questions down. Begin to think about that this week. I'll put the questions up on Facebook and on the blog as well. And we'll continue to wrestle with this and see where it leads. So let's have the team come up and we'll finish with one more song. Let me, let me just pray for this as um, I think about this. Lord, I'm thankful that... Um, for this time, to talk about what is uncomfortable, um, to talk about what is difficult, and yet um, you haven't asked us um, to follow you because it, it, it's, it, it's convenient or it works out, Lord. You didn't come after us because it seemed like a good thing to do and you had nothing better. Lord, you jumped into darkness and brokenness to rescue us. Lord, you take our realities very seriously. You know who we are. You know the world in which we live in. Lord, And you, um, you ask us to work there and to work there redemptively. Lord, I pray that you begin to spark our imagination as a community, whether it be to, to think about how, how do we put some of this in, in art or just to begin to give examples or come up with a creative response that doesn't... That doesn't Damn the world around us, and yet also doesn't um, run away um, from, the, from its brokenness. Lord, guide us, inspire us. Help us to see where you are this very week. Help us to see with new eyes, um, perhaps things that we'd never noticed before. Lord, and then help us to think about being, respond, being faithful in our response to that. Lord, for your glory and for the sake of this world, for the benefit of this world, Pray this in your name. Amen.